I think that story is a key part of how humans self-identify. We all tell ourselves stories of the kind of people that we want to be and how we would like to be seen by others. And to that extent, it would make sense that companies would also be telling themselves stories of the way that they want to be seen, both in terms of marketing and brand, but also in terms of you know, the kind of work that they want to do and the kind of world that they want to inherit. I, th I think the reason that storytelling is so so prevalent at the moment partly is because stories are about change. You know, if, if nothing, nothing changes in the story, it's not a story. And we're in this um, time of such, you know, change on so many fronts that people, people look to story as a way to explain to them what's going on and make some sort of sense of it. So today's episode, something a little bit different again, um, is all around the importance of storytelling in in work and life. Um, I'm joined by Harriet Patience Davis, who is in charge of storytelling at Accenture, um, and also by Michael Kowalski, who's really is involved in a really interesting. Um, fairly new venture called tortoise and it's a news startup but it's based on the idea of slow news and so the topic's all around storytelling um and i love the idea of storytelling and the fact that storytelling is having a real resurgence and i think organizations in these days of covid have been having to tell a lot of stories to themselves to keep the organization ticking over I think a lot of leaders have had to spend a lot more time communicating. What are they communicating about? They're communicating about the stories of what the organization's doing, what it's making hap uh, happen, etc. Um, so I'm kind of uh, really uh, pleased to have this conversation. So um, delighted to be joined today by Harriet Patience Davis. Harriet is a former screenwriter. I think probably the first former screenwriter we've had on the podcast uh, and a current digital consultant for Accenture. Um, in 2019, she became the UK storytelling coach for Accenture UK, and she's responsible for internal training and coaching with the aim of widespread adoption of storytelling skills across the business. And I think it's fascinating that an organisation like Accenture has somebody who comes in to help them with storytelling. So we're going to get into that. Uh, my other guest is Michael Kowalski. Michael is currently head of product at Tortoise, a London-based slow news startup that is pioneering a new approach to journalism. And let's face it, we all want new approaches to journalism because... So much of the journalism we kind of currently consume, if that's the right word, is so kind of kind of demeaning and depressing. Um, it's not that these things haven't happened, but is that the only thing that's happened on in our world that day? Sometimes I wonder about it. Anyway, um, he's also he spent the past 20 years designing media products, founding a couple of startups along the way. And he also curates the annual storytelling conference, Confluence, held at Google's Academy in London. So great to have you here, Harriet and Michael. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah so um, just to kind of start off, because you've both got 
kind of job descriptions, if you like, that kind of need a little bit of explanation. So could I start off with you, Harriet? Could you kind of describe your work and, and also how the, how did you get into storytelling at a huge consulting and technology company like Accenture? Absolutely. So I think it's important to state that Accenture didn't recruit me as a storytelling consultant. Accenture brought me in as a digital product person about five years ago when the Accenture digital brand was really strong. And one of the nature of uh, these big consultancies is, which I didn't know when I joined, I will admit, is it's a little bit like a, a it's a little bit like a recruitment consultancy and that once you've joined into the consultancy as a client facing person, you're responsible for finding your jobs that you do and which clients you want to work on and how you want to develop your career. So I've been at Accenture for five years doing project work and product work and digital delivery work. And there was this opportunity that came up last year for a storytelling coach which I guess means I should go a little bit further back in my career, which is that uh, when I was at university, I fell head over heels in love with screenwriting and really wanted to pursue that as a career. I got a master's degree in it and I got myself some shorts made and even a feature. But it just, I could not break through. And I was trying to do um, a full-time job to pay the rent, along with doing screenwriting in the mornings and on the weekends. And I will admit I burnt out a bit in my late 20s, getting up at 4 a.m. to do a couple of hours writing before work, working a full day, then coming home and writing again in the evening. And it it all got too much. And I had to make a call at that point to, to go with the career that was going to pay for my rent and put food on the table. I still write for fun. I still uh, challenge myself to produce fiction and I'm still a very amateur part of that world. That being said, when I realized that Accenture actually had an interest in storytelling and they were looking to develop this skill internally, I was really eager to take on the role. And I've been doing it now for a little under a year. And I have to say, it's been my favorite job since I've been there. It is a lot of fun. So just, just so how does... An organization like Accenture decide that they want somebody to teach them and help them with storytelling. And, 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 did you, and, and, and when they did that, did you just sort of internally apply for it? I actually had been lobbying that we should be doing more around storytelling for about three years. Um, I was sent on design thinking training for human-centered design, which I absolutely loved. And I recognized some of the techniques that we were using in design thinking as techniques that I had used in screenwriting and when I had been studying for my master's in screenwriting. Lots of familiarity between customer journeys and um, a positive to negative mapping of how an audience feels watching a James Bond film, for example. And so I started talking to people then about it and making a little bit of a name for myself internally as this person who won't shut up about how we should use Hollywood movies more with our clients. As to why the company has decided to focus on this, I think it really comes down to the fact that we are a big technology company. And in my opinion, sometimes we're not brilliant at expressing ourselves because we can get very, very technical. And so my understanding is that the company recognized that improving communication skills and enabling everybody to explain these highly technical, highly complex uh, solutions and systems 
in a best way in the best way possible meant that we were going to have to work on a wider set of communication skills and that led to the powers that be i will admit i don't know exactly who it was who made the high level choice to bring it in but there has been a over the past few years storytelling has become a really a big focus for people improving people's communication and presentation skills I mean a lot of what I taught a lot of what I teach within the company and a lot of the conversations that I have with people they do end up being very directly around presentations and speeches and pitches but there's a wider understanding that there are lessons we can take from storytelling storytelling being let's face it one of the standard and basic ways that human beings have communicated for tens if not hundreds of thousands of years we were telling stories around a campfire long before we were writing books and certainly long before we were using technical language and drawing systems diagrams and so i think there's a recognition that there's lessons we can take from that to make ourselves better communicators in every single way yeah no and and i think it's i think one of the reasons why i really wanted to record this podcast with you both is that i i i love storytelling and i love story i i mean i i'm a ceo of a a consulting company there's 120 people in it and people often say this is not me patting myself on the back it's just hopefully useful information that they often say i spend a lot of time telling stories and and gathering examples and one of the things that strikes me about stories in an information dense world is that stories provide a kind of way of understanding the world around us and i i can quite see why in accenture where you've got so much kind of brain power happening and you've got you know pitches for x y and z it's it's the stories that 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 cut through is there is there a, an example that you could give me of where a story inside accenture kind of helped kind of unlock something that it was that was stuck if that's the right question I can give you some details without client names because obviously we have many uh, NDAs that I'm required to uphold but I'm aware that there was a pitch that was happening in uh, Latin America where we responded to the RFP document and in detail you know every question that was asked we responded to it every requirement we responded to it and the document that we sent back was apparently 500 pages long 500 pages i mean can you imagine that a 500 page pitch document and the client in question came back to us and said we don't know what you're saying we don't understand what you're trying to tell us and i believe the uh the pitch team at that point they had already been working with uh, some of our creative agencies that we work with and that we've acquired within the larger extension network and they decided to basically throw out the pitch document and instead produce a 7 minute video showing it from the customer's side and this particular pitch was all about um financing for car loans and basically in in changing the focus from this massive 500 page response document into a 7 minute video that said you know what it's not about all of the details of this it's about what we're going to be able to offer your customers it completely restructured it completely changed the conversation they were having 
and the client was very happy and I believe we won the pitch and went forward and we're still working with them now. So yeah, 500 page document versus seven minute video. That's a hell of a turnaround. Yeah, and there was somebody in my company, one of our one of our consultants, he was talking about um, a project his wife had been involved in and she works for a large pharmaceutical company. And what they had done was that they created some TV adverts that were all based on what people inside the pharmaceutical company had been doing during COVID uh, in terms of reusing skills that they've got, obviously, in the medical field, etc., and capturing those stories. And I, I watched it. It was up on uh, on um, YouTube, and it really kind of gave you tingles. And it was, it you know, it, and essentially, obviously, what you're then thinking is, what what a great company and what great stories. And and I and I think it's a sort of example, isn't it, of of trying to capture um, these 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 stories and, and examples. So so Michael, um, could you just explain um, what Tortoise does and what a slow news organization does but also um how do how did you get involved with this annual storytelling conference confluence yeah okay um i mean i've worked in uh, on the edge of journalism for quite a long time working for businesses like um the guardian and, and news corp and so forth and but but never as a journalist i'm not a journalist um I've been involved on, you know, the media technology side of these businesses. Um, and, you know, later founding some, some of the startups I've worked on have been about building tools for telling stories. So Tortoise is a journalism business in the sense that, you know, we have a bunch of journalists and we do produce stories. But what's different about it is... Actually, a good way to look at it is where the impetus of founding Tortoise came from, which is um, really the events of 2016. If you think about uh, Trump being elected in America, uh, the Brexit vote happening here in the UK, you know, I think a lot of people who are working in the media felt um, they'd missed the story. You know, that, that how, how, how did they not see this coming? Um, you know, th- there's a sense that everyone's, caught up in this little sort of media bubble. So I, th- I think the thing about journalism is, is that, you know, who's telling the stories, what, what voices are being listened to? At Tortoise, we're trying to find a way to sort of burst that bubble and listen to a wider range of voices. So a lot of what we do is really about organised listening. Um, we're a membership organisation. We don't rely on any uh, advertising. Uh, our members, you know, effectively come into our newsroom and tell us about their their experience and their opinions and help us find leads for stories to follow up. Um, and we hope out of that we produce a kind of uh, a deeper, more reflective journalism, you know, that it takes as long as it takes uh, to, to get to the story. Yeah. And, and, um, and what about the Confluence Conference? And, and uh, how did you get involved with a conference about storytelling? Uh, well, yeah, as I said, I've been, I've, you know, been doing various startups kind of around the edge of the space and working with publishers. Um, a good friend of mine, Justin Solomon, runs a, um, a networking organization for uh, people in the book industry in the UK. And she asked me if I could 
uh, step in and curate this conference for her when she when she had the idea of doing it. It's fantastic. Uh, we get a wide range of people talking about storytelling in all types of contexts. Uh, you know, business as much as screenplays or novels or gaming. You know, this. What is interesting about storytelling as a technique is the wide scope of areas that you can apply it to. I suppose I'm thinking, you know, we're recording this in in, in July. Um, Harriet, what, what stories have you been telling or what stories are getting told inside Accenture um, in the days of COVID? Well, we've definitely been telling stories about adopting to remote working. Um, we adopted to remote working really very quickly. We shut down all of our offices, I believe, uh, in advance of the UK government's uh, lockdown. And and we've got offices all around the world. So we've had people who have been working in call centers, for example. I have uh, colleagues I've spoken to in Malaysia who weren't necessarily as set up for remote working as we were in the UK. And so there's had to be this well, Herculaneum effort to just shift everybody to remote working. So we've been telling a lot of those internal success stories in, in ensuring that everybody is safe and ensuring that everybody is okay to work. But we've also been helping out various clients go through the same journey because not everybody was set up for remote working. Often you had organizations where um, you know, only a certain proportion of the staff would have laptops and everybody else would have a desktop machine. And, you know, desktops are transportable, but they're not exactly easily adaptable for remote working. So there's been lots going on with that. I believe that we're one of the biggest users in the world of Microsoft Teams. Um, I seem to recall, now I might not have the statistic correct, but I seem to recall that we went from 100 million minutes of Microsoft Teams a day to 300 million minutes of Microsoft Teams a day. You know what? I would have to look that up. I can't quite remember if this, what the story was there. I think you're right. And I think um, I think you probably are the largest ever user of Teams. And I think the, 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 the number is certainly in the several hundred million minutes. Yeah. And, um, um, and, and Michael... I mean, in a way, you know, you're involved in in storytelling um, with with tortoise. Tor, that's kind of what what you're doing. But has that changed during um, during COVID? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a weird way, COVID has been good for us. Um, we were in the past uh, running loads of events in our on premise in our newsroom. I mean, actually, I should give you a better idea of this. What we do is once or even twice a day, sometimes three times a day, we bring in a, a group of people into our newsroom and we discuss a topic with them. We, you know, we explore some question. Normally, we'll have some invited guests who've got specialties, uh, you know, special expertise in, in the subject. But also we want to, you know, hear from our members as well and, 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 and what they have to say and what they think. Could you give me an example of, of something um, that, that you did that? this process with oh god um did I, I didn't go to one of today's i don't think we, let me just have a quick look at my calendar and find out what we've got on today i mean there's just a wide range of issues things from um culture and technology a lot of politics um sometimes exploring specific stories about um you, you know cases that are active uh lockdown obviously we had to bring this all online and that 
has turned out to be absolutely great, that we get bigger audiences, we get more diverse audiences, um, we get audiences from other countries, you know, that the we, we get audiences who, you know, are, are capable to come to one of our events without having to lock, be in London on a specific date, a specific time. So from that point of view, it's been really good. And, of course, also we've done a lot of journalism about COVID. Um, you know, trying to go deeper than what's happening on any one day, a lot of work with data, looking at, you know, how various data sets have changed over the course of the pandemic and, and you know, what the impact of that might be going forward. Mm. And, and when we're thinking about um, leaders and managers and, and the power of stories in work, um, I, I mean, how do, how, how do you sort of take somebody in a, in a leadership or a management role, Harrier, and, and how do you turn them from somebody who potentially might produce a, you know, an 800-page document or, or whatever into somebody who's thinking in terms of um, stories? Um, what's, what's the kind of process you go through? Well, there's definitely a mind shift shift which is required. I can't pretend that that's an easy journey. We have um, some really good internal training, which is focused on developing our next generation of leaders. And when I say that, I don't just mean looking at the 20-somethings or 30-somethings. I mean, we have training going through every stage of your career, which is all about developing your leadership skills. And storytelling is a really big part of um at least two of those trainings that I'm aware of. In fact, under one of them, we define storytelling as the ability to articulate an inspiring vision. And uh, so bringing people in and convincing them that they can look beyond the 500-page document to find the story, to find the way of making that. Can, we've, uh, I believe the company has had a widespread view for quite a long time in terms of developing its internal resource, but we've had a focus on winning them over to the value and power of storytelling. And obviously, there are facts and figures that you can use for that. There's a lot of science out there about how well an audience responds to storytelling. For example, a fact wrapped in a story is 22 times more memorable than the fact alone. So when you're able to say, you know, if you include a story in your presentation wrapped around this fact, then people are going to remember it a lot better We've also got um, scientific studies saying that uh, when people are, when, when people, in brain scans of people who have been telling stories, the brain lights up in far more places. The brain is engaged. And there's also been studies that have shown that when a story is told well, and the speaker's brain lights up in all of these different places, the audience's brain will also light up in these different places. It's referred to as neural coupling. So we, we literally have the science to back it up, that including storytelling in engaging your presentations, engaging with clients is a really good way of delivering your message in an effective and compelling way. We, we, we have quite a technical audience. So, of course, we use the science to prove the value. And has the organization sort of embedded this 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 kind of way of approaching um, conversations would you say or is it still a sort of 
kind of added on feature or I don't know what the expression is, but um, how far has it become part of the culture? I'd say it's a journey that we're on to kind of bring this up. I mean, I, I can't speak on behalf of Accenture and their goals here because I am simply one small cog in the massive machine. But, I, you know, we started that journey and I think a lot of people are starting to recognize the value, but obviously we've still got quite a way to go. Nothing changes overnight in these big organizations, does it? No. And when and when you're starting off trying to bring stories to a, a group of consultants, uh, managers, um, do you start off with a story? I like to use TED Talks. I like to bring in TED Talks and because I think a lot of people recognize that TED Talks are about the the highest level of professional presentations that we see widely. And so I tend to bring in a lot of TED Talks and get people talking about why this worked or why that worked. There isn't, I think, unfortunately, one story that we can tell that will win everybody over. So we, as we actually advise people on our storytelling training, you have to tailor to your audience and look for what their needs and their interests are. And luckily, there are thousands and thousands of TED Talks. Yeah. And, 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 and Michael, I mean, what when what role does this play in the in the sort of output from from tortoise you know do you do, does do you come from a, a more of a narrative storytelling approach or is it more kind of factually based how how uh, and how do you kind of try and amplify the story aspect i think it's a mix of those things i mean as i said uh, i'm not a journalist I, I think I think if you're working in product, though, I mean, product is all about triangulating user needs, business requirements, you know, technology. Um, and a lot of the time you're in the middle there communicating between these groups of people who, you know, stakeholders who don't necessarily all understand each other. And it is really powerful to uh, develop a, a, a sort of common narrative that everybody can get behind and they can, you know, understand that story and where it's going. So it's it's certainly a big part about uh, of how I approach the work that I'm doing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I, I've noticed um, that, the, that stories do seem to kind of capture people in a, a particular way. There's a story that I've noticed. I have, like, favourite stories, not hopefully kind of ones that I tell interminably. But there's, a, there's you know... I'll, I'll, because I spend a bit like the Accenture consultants, you know, I'm, I'm running a management consulting company. So there's a lot of client interaction and so on. And there's a story I tell about Neil Barnett and, and Neil Barnett's in charge of all the digital workplace at Heathrow Airport. And um, the story I tell is about him deciding to go down the runway at night with some of the people who work fixing snags in the runway and he really wants to kind of find out what's their actual experience being on the front line and what do they what extra tools and services do they need in order to get their job done and what he discovers is that actually they don't need anything else to get their work done but what would be really useful and what he then introduced was an ability to shift to change their shifts and rotor with their colleagues. So if there's something happening in their own personal life, 
they can adapt their shifts and, and what they're doing in order and it's really about the, the the kind of story behind it is that once you start to get into the nuts and bolts of what people are doing and actually uh, observe that you might get some very surprising uh, results and and, and I've, I suppose I've kind of noticed that that will then spark in in people listening to it well actually that's just like that here at Ikea or at Wells Fargo uh, or at HSBC um, and, and I don't know whether you've noticed this but uh, Harry I've kind of found that during COVID there have been a lot more stories coming to the surface I mean in a way we've been kind of we've there's been so many in the in the societies communities that that we're part of but also stories in work I mean, you know people are telling me stories about how the senior management in cleveland all got all the 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 all the kind of kit for home working and we're going round to people's homes and plugging things in and how the kind of leadership loved getting their sleeves rolled up and i and and, and what i've noticed is that the kind of crisis seems to have brought out stories and i just wonder why why do you have any th- views of why that might be harriet i think that we're in a, a global pandemic situation and i think that people have been a little bit desperate for good news i know in the early days in the early days of covid where it felt like every single news alert was just a climbing uh, ladder of numbers and 10,000 dead here and 20,000 infected there. I had to detach from the news a little bit for my own mental health. And I've certainly seen a rise in people sharing uplifting stories and stories of amazing things. Stories about people rescuing animals, stories about um, communities coming together to help out their most vulnerable members. I mean, uh, the John Krasinski, have you seen the John Krasinski uh, web show that he did called Some Good News? I think he made it to three episodes before it actually got bought by one of the major um, television channels in the States. But basically, John Krasinski, the actor and director, had been... Um, I suppose going through the internet looking for positive news stories that he then edited into this little show that he was delivering from behind his desk. And, you know, because he's a Hollywood actor and director and he had some good uh, connections, obviously, he also managed to get things like the entire Broadway cast of Hamilton to, to come online and sing one of the songs from the show. And it was incredibly uplifting watching this. And, and it just kind of made you smile. And I think in these dark days that we're all living through, something that makes you smile has been very valuable. And I think a lot of stories are the way that people have uh, have found that. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's interesting. That reminds me of what David Byrne from Talking Heads has done with Reasons to be Cheerful, which is a site my partner subscribes to a magazine called Positive News. And it's not kind of fluff. It's It's stuff that's happening that's actually really encouraging and positive and and um I, I i actually started off as a journalist and i was a city editor at reuters and i kind of left because i just got kind of tired of you know if somebody had died or something bad had happened we'd be there and and I, you know i think one of the things that we're discovering in 2020 is that the world is a lot more complex 
and varied than we thought and actually you know the example you've just mentioned there um the reasons to be cheerful and one of the things i think even the daily telegraph had started publishing positive news and i i wonder michael do you have a kind of remit within your organization um to kind of select for a more i don't know if you'd call it more balanced or just a more kind of varied um set of what we call news well, that's a tricky one. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the the news currents recently have been negative, um, and we can't, you know, pretend that none of that is happening. I think um, we we ran a project though called um, Letters from Lockdown, where we asked people to send in kind of short audio stories about what they've been doing under lockdown, and uh, you know, a lot of those were really uplifting and, 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 you know, not, not entirely what I necessarily would have expected actually. Um, but uh, I, th- I think the reason that storytelling is so, so prevalent at the moment partly is because stories are about change. You know, if, if nothing, nothing changes in the story, it's not a story. And we're in this um, time of such, you know, change on so many fronts that, People people look to story as a way to explain to them what's going on and make some sort of sense of it. Yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, I think that's certainly true. And I think the, in a way, both within the workplace and and outside. And what I've noticed is that those two worlds are blurring a lot. You know, I mean, we we had uh, a number of kind of conversations and meetings um, postponed or cancelled with 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 particular clients because they were all out on black lives matter protests in the states mm. and 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 they were being really open about that and talking about that and this never used to happen and i think the kind of there's a real blurring between inside and outside as people are trying to understand kind of what's happening in the world around us and you mentioned 2016 and and that was what brought me kind of uh, to Charles Eisenstein, who's coming on Digital Workplace Group 24, which is our 24-hour program. And he's he's sort of kind of known, I call him an ecological philosopher, but he, he got known for talking about us being between stories, that one story of the world around us, certainly for a kind of our dominant civilization, was was you know and this is going back several years was struggling and the other story hadn't yet come into clear relief and we were in between we're in that sort of transitional space and i then translated his ideas i did a talk at the imf in washington called working between stories and uh, people really liked it and i was kind of saying look if you've got more questions and answers at the moment don't don't be surprised we're between stories and they were as an organization saying well you know we were founded in 1947 after the second world war and we kind of were there to build financial resilience but now financial resilience means environmental resilience and and so should we be now more about um climate change than financial stability and how and they were kind of open about you know and and people have talked about are you know are we in a sort of period like after the second world war is 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 this global pandemic you know what kind of world do we want to create for ourselves and and i just wonder um um 
do you feel that organizations harriet have kind of stories that they do they kind of know their own stories so i mean i, th- I mentioned ikea that's probably an organization that's got quite a good clear story you know you sort of understand the founders but if we think of somebody like you know GlaxoSmithKline, do they do they have a story that isn't we're a large pharmaceutical company or you know i just wonder how how prevalent or, or absent that is in the world of organizations and work that's a really interesting question paul because you can look at that from one point of view of story being equivalent to brand, right? And obviously there are stories that are told about companies and there are stories that are mythologized about companies. I mean, it's it's interesting to me sometimes to look at some of the biopics that have come out of Hollywood in the past decade or so with the social network and two different Steve Jobs movies and kind of mythologizing how companies launched or how companies relaunched or how it all came together. I think, I think that story is a key part of how humans self-identify. We all tell ourselves stories of the kind of people that we want to be and how we would like to be seen by others. And to that extent, it would make sense that companies would also be telling themselves stories of the way that they want to be seen, both in terms of marketing and brand, but also in terms of, you know, the kind of work that they want to do and the kind of world that they want to inherit. I think that there's been a big and necessary push towards corporate social responsibility. In in uh, and it's it's grown in power over the past well, a couple of decades, really, since since we turned into this millennium, corporate social responsibility has just become a bigger and bigger part. And I know I have read uh, statistics saying that um, people who are graduating from university now and have graduated from university in the past five years, they want to work for companies which are giving something back. Even if that's not necessarily taking the stage of actually going to work for a charity, they don't actually want to work for a faceless corporate organization which is out to destroy the world which i think might have been the prevalence story that was going on for a while there about some of the mega brands that we have you can you can see it in oil and gas right you can see how some of the oil and gas companies are are trying to rebrand themselves and are looking into energy alternatives and you just that it feels like you now have to try and set your own story, I suppose, as a company, because otherwise the story will be set for you. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good way of putting it. And I wonder how the, the digital tools inside organizations could be, can be used to, to share stories. I suppose one thing that occurs to me is that there's been quite a lot of examples of, of CEOs using, um, uh, different technologies to to live stream um, to connect communicate with people inside their organization because they discovered everybody's at home and I, I i think kind of julie sweet who's the ceo of accenture has been has been kind of doing that and i've also seen her interviewed um frankly telling good stories um but, you know, do, are there particular technologies that you think lend themselves to powerful, strong storytelling in work? I think the growth of video calling, platforms like Skype, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, 
have enabled us to have a more personal connection with leadership figures who, for these, for some large organizations, they would just have existed as, well, in the same way as Hollywood actors do, for static faces on a screen far away. And now we have all of these amazing virtual tools and you can literally join a, a virtual Q&A session with your CEO and ask them a question and have them answer it looking at you over a video feed in the same way as you're looking at them. So all of the kind of video calling tools have just really increased the possibility for that kind of personal storytelling, which is just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I've talked about how, I mean, we as a company used to have offices in London and New York until seven years ago. And then when we got rid of them, how it actually brought the company closer together because everybody was in the same sort of shared digital environment. And then one of the other stories I tell is that twice a year, this is sort of pre-COVID, the management team used to then hire a house and live together. So I said, we don't work together, but occasionally we live together. And, you know, that became kind of a, you know, a popular, a popular story. And, and, and Michael, I'm just kind of thinking, you know, are there particular organisations or even nations that you think this year have been telling compelling stories? Uh, as a New Zealander, I have a simple answer on that one. Um, uh, but uh, uh, Jacinda aside, you, you know, I th- I'm with Eisenstein. I think he's absolutely right that the end of history seems a long time ago now that um, and that's, in a business context, that whole Californian VC startup narrative is, you know, looking a bit tired. It feels like we are in between things and we're not um, really sure where we're going next. We, we ran a piece, actually, we've done a couple of big pieces of journalism this year called Tech Nations, looking at the shift of power towards um, corporates and, and talking about the big tech companies as if they were nations, you know, that they've got their own foreign policies and domestic policies and, and so on, which is kind of a really interesting way to frame it and give, gives it a nice kind of uh, narrative to, to hang a lot of data around as well. I think as a, a business, if we're interested in one thing above all else, it's, it's, it's the power gap that exists in the world today. And, you know, the, the, the old model seems to be failing it's not clear what that new model is Mm, mm. yeah i mean and it strikes me i suppose probably the nation that's that for good reason has been telling one of the most compelling stories this year is is new zealand um uh, but i wonder i wonder if that's just because um is that because of anything actively that New Zealand's been doing to try and tell a good story? Or it's just that, you know, the kind of facts speak for themselves and people have craved, you know, strong stories of well-led governments? No, I think, I think they genuinely adopted a very strong approach where from very early on they said, you know, here are these uh, four or five levels, here's what triggers us going to the next stage – Here's what we have to do to, to get back out of it. These are the consequences. All very open and transparent. And, you know, from the Prime Minister, a lot of rhetoric about a team of five million, which, you know, people in the country really seem to have bought into, that they understood the plan and they're all getting behind it. And I think that, you know, contrasts rather strongly with what has happened in, in your country and in this country. 
Yeah, and of course, Harriet, that makes me wonder whether <laughs> there's a any intrinsic difference between, if you like, the female stories and the male stories. Um, maybe not reserved specifically to men and women, but is there something about a kind of female narrative in work that's different from a male masculine narrative in work? Um, it's a bit of a loaded question, but I, I, I'd be interested to hear what you think. I think there are definitely types of stories that fit perceptions of gender as we go forward. Though it has been very interesting in, in since we've been in the COVID-19 crisis to see which countries have done well. And I, I'm sure I won't be the only person who has seen memes going around social media pointing out that some of the female-led countries have done a lot better than some of the male-led countries. But then, you know, there's so many more male-led countries than there are female-led countries. It's uh, it's not necessarily a fair comparison. I think the the, the stories which are t- tend to be associated with women and that get really kind of put close on a, on a female as a female story, you tend to have a lot of things around nurturing, around caring, around family, and. As Michael just said, uh, Jacinda leading a team of five million, we're all in this together. Uh, Those feel like a very female-led narrative. That being said, Boris has said we're all in this together several times. So it's obviously not just a story which is used by women. I actually wonder whether... um... I mean, there's another. St- I think of stories that I've been telling. So I've, I've, I've. Uh, I mean, I got asked a question um, by somebody I was having lunch with in January, and I was talking about this whole thing about being between stories, and 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 um, the person I was having lunch said to me, "Well, where's the leadership going to come from?" And I said, "My own view is that we're moving into an era of collective leadership." rather than individual leadership. And that's not to say that individuals don't have an important role to play, but I think that increasingly it's the collective that's been leading. And in a way, COVID has been a a really powerful example. You know, if I think about the best things that have happened in the UK during COVID, I don't particularly think about the government. I think about fellow citizens and the collective effort that people have put in um sort of self-leadership in a way so um that's just to kind of bring things to a close one thing i'm just wondering is so in this year of incredible stories um michael what's what's the story that's kind of most captured you what's what's the What's the th- what's the sort of story of 2020 that that you've really kind of that that's kind of really hit home for you? And while Michael's being put on the spot for that one, Harriet, you can you can think of your own answer to it. That is a tough one. It feels like we're so in the middle of it still that we don't know what the ending is. That's quite good. That's sort of like yeah, we're still in the middle of the book. This probably doesn't fit actually here, but. Um, Uh, from a kind of narrow product perspective, um, one thing I think has been super interesting about um, the pandemic is um, virtual reality, Um, that it didn't happen, that it's a dog that didn't bark, Um, that, you know, 
if it wasn't going to be now, then when? I, I say this because it's, it's something I'm super interested in. When I run the storytelling conference, I always program a reasonable bit of immersive stuff. And it, it felt like over the last two months while everyone's stuck at home, it would have been the perfect moment for some of this stuff to really see some uptake. And, and it simply hasn't happened. Yeah. And why do you think that is? It's interesting, isn't it? It's, I, I'm not entirely sure. I, on, on the augmented reality stuff, the technology is not ready. Um, on virtual reality, it is a bit more puzzling. I'm, I'm still trying to understand that. I mean, maybe it's to do with what's essential. And, you know, it strikes me that when, when, when you're in crisis, you find out what's essential. We find out who the essential workers are. That's a story, isn't it? You know, we now, we now know who in our society is actually essential. And, um, it wasn't, wasn't any of us. It wasn't no, any, of us, any was it? of us. <laughs> but then my my ex wife went back into nursing, and and became one of the essential workers. So you know, it, it was so so that that was interesting. I think when you get down to the essential part of it, you discover that what you want is it's nice to be able to see each other, and it's nice to be able to hear each other. And aside from that, I don't really need that much so i don't i'm just wondering why you know because i think it is interesting what you said michael about uh, virtual reality yet again disappointing us and and harriet what's what's your kind of the story that's captured you for in 2020 i think we're definitely at that point of the famous quote about the french revolution that it's too early to tell but i have loved hearing the stories of how people have come together to help out and I am um, stories such as uh, just little, even little stories that have come up, WhatsApp groups um, supporting so that younger residents can support older residents in a neighborhood, stories that came around of people doing um, socially distance aerobics at the end of their gardens every day. It seems, I think it's as we were mentioning earlier, there have been there has been so much darkness this year that any story which shows that human beings are inherently social animals and that people want to help has, has been good. There is a book called A Paradise Made in Hell, which is all about how when human beings face moments of crisis in, in great tragedy and in huge upheavals and earthquakes and hurricanes, that we have this prevailing narrative that we as a society will all turn upon each other and it will be horrendous and that the human beings are the worst monsters, right? And every single apocalypse story ever, the human beings are worse than the zombies. They're worse than the aliens. They're worse than this. And I never particularly wanted to live through an apocalypse scenario, but to be living through a global pandemic and seeing how people have come together when they've been given those opportunities is, is wonderful. I will say, however, that this year does seem like uh, it's gearing up for a big finale. We've had so many uh, little cliffhangers along the way. If this was a TV show or a Hollywood movie, I would be very concerned about the third act. <laughs> that's a that's a, a that's a really uh, really good way of putting it. And um, I mean, I I've been you know. I've had a, it's a few interesting uh, uh, conversations with people where it's like, well, we go back to, you know, this whole thing where we go back to normal. And that, that's a bit like, well, can you go back in history and live in a period that's now gone? And I, I, I'm, and one of the things that I think for me is my, my sort of 
main story, I think, is that we've had this global experiment in climate renewal. And we've discovered that if we travel less and consume and produce less, the climate will actually respond really quickly. And I think um, that's a factual experiment that happened that we can't now not have happened so so we can we now know something about our ability to positively affect the environment that we didn't know last december Uh, and that should really really encourage us um and so that's that's kind of been something that uh has stayed with me about 2020 so just before we end anything that any closing words anything you'd like to to say I, I'm really enjoying how storytelling is having a bit of a resurgence at the moment. And I think it was named back in January, back in those halcyon early days before the global pandemic was global. And uh, when we were just worried about Australia burning, um, there were various articles that said that storytelling is, is the hot trend of 2020. And obviously, we all know that is no longer the case. Remote working is the hot trend of 2020. Um But one of the things I remember somebody actually asked me, which is, why am I hearing about storytelling now? Why why are we talking about it now? And I think that it's not new. It's been around for a very long time. And none of the techniques and approaches that I teach people are new. I teach people to use simple language. I teach people to make eye contact with their audience. I teach people to you know, be conscious of where they have their hands when they're standing on stage or when they're presenting on a video call. None of these are new things. And previously, we might have called it good communication skills, or we might have called it executive presence or um, strong presentation ability. And if we are going to keep working in a remote world for the foreseeable future, because I don't see myself going back to an office for a while then I think it's ever more important that we communicate better. And if storytelling is one way of doing that, then it will help us. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, storytelling becomes really important inside organisations and really important in work because the stories that we, that the organisations tell themselves and recount inside the organisation, um, you know, forms, forms their culture. So, um, well, thank you both so much for your for your contributions for your time today i think i think kind of storytelling's kind of really having its kind of resurgence moment because we want to find meaning um at the moment and we do that through stories and telling stories um so thank you so much michael and and thank you harriet it's been really nice talking to you paul thank you Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the show, go to digitalworkplacegroup.com forward slash DWG underscore score podcast. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.